When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And welcome to another episode of Something Rhymes with Purple. And more importantly, Merry Christmas. This is our Christmas episode. And this time last year, Giles, we covered the stories behind lots and lots of traditional Christmas words, didn't we? And that I think our listeners can find on Le Petto Man. That's what the episode is called. Um, I'm just looking across at you wearing a Christmas jumper. I am wearing a Christmas jumper. I'm wearing holly in my hat. I'm feeling very Christmassy. And you've got those dealy boppers on again. <laughs> and in my head, I'm singing ding dong merrily on high. And we wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. It's been very frustrating, you know, in the United Kingdom, singing carols has not been possible because people have been nervous that the aerosols, because of uh, COVID, have been hanging around. Mm. And so people have been discouraged from singing which is mm. a great shame because normally at this time of year in the UK, they reckon about 7 million people would have been singing carols. And it's been very... Fr- one incidental, It'll be extra special next year. It'll be extra special like next year. And, yes. and I, of course, uh, love Christmas. I love everything to do with Christmas. And I particularly love Charles Dickens. And in fact, this year, I've had a, a wonderful experience because uh, the Lawrence Batley Playhouse which is a wonderful theatre in the north of England for our international listeners, have done a community production of A Christmas Carol, the hugely successful Charles Dickens novel, uh, one of his shortest novels and one of his most successful and most enduring. And they've done a version with local community members and I voice the part of Ebenezer Scrooge. Oh, and it's been great amazing. fun to do. You are, you are actually as far away from Scrooge as I can possibly well, imagine. Very sweet, but it's a great story and it was a fun part to play. I can imagine. And, and if people want to, I think you can get it online, you just have to download it, go to the Lawrence Batley Playhouse and you'll find it, A Christmas Carol. So that's fun. But we've talked about Dickens and his contribution to Christmas, the Christmas vocabulary. But he is a novelist that we really associate with this time of year. And you can't do better, I think, at the Christmas season than for an hour or two, stop playing the games, even stop listening to the podcast, certainly turn off the TV, find a fire of some kind, or even a hot water bottle, curl up with it. Oh, yes. And... Read a good book. Escape into the world of the imagination. You've just reminded me of a great word. So I... Yes, tell me. What is the great word? It's a great regional word. It doesn't exactly conjure... The sound of it doesn't exactly conjure up its meaning, but I still love it. Cloffin. C-L-O-F-F-I-N. To cloffin is to sit peacefully by the fire and do whatever you want to, to do. Cloughin. But it's just to bask in the warmth of a fire, which is just lovely. This is the time of year to cloffin with a good book. Mm. And... Charles Dickens was the author of some amazing good books, 14 completed novels, hundreds of other works, including short stories, lots of them with a Christmas theme. Obviously, there are letters of his that are published. He wrote 
plays, he wrote poetry, he collaborated with others. He even wrote famously a biography of Grimaldi, the clown Grimaldi. Have you heard of Grimaldi? Oh, yes, vaguely. I can't say I know much about him. You should have heard of Grimaldi. The reason you should have heard him at this time of year is he was the original clown Joey, Joe Grimaldi. And he was the person who, in a way, made pantomime famous in Britain. He was a pantomime Uh clown. He suffered from depression very badly. And towards the end of his life, feeling very depressed, he went to see his doctor. And he said, you know, I'm feeling very, very depressed. And the doctor said, you must get out of yourself. Go to Drury Lane, go to the pantomime, go and see the great clown Joey. And Grimaldi said, I am the great clown (laughs) Joey. (laughs) And that's a a story told to us by Charles Dickens, because he wrote Grimaldi's autobiography for him. He ghost wrote it uh, under the name of, of Boz. Amazing. And as a lexicographer, Dickens has a special place, really, quite similar to Shakespeare. He was a neologizer, so he came up with lots of new words, but he was a real popularizer as well, wasn't he? And he wrote for a mass readership using words that were kind of, I don't know, they just perfectly matched the stories that he told. And I'm sure we will talk about his naming of characters a bit later. But he also really expanded the vocabulary that was in in common circulation. Well, I've dug up a list of all the amazing, or some of the amazing words that he introduced. I mean, the OED, your favourite dictionary, the Oxford English Dictionary, uh, credits him with coining 258 new words Mm. and has 1,586 first citations for giving a new sense to a word. Yeah. Which is pretty remarkable, isn't it? It is. It it absolutely is. And, you know, for even the ones, the words that were around before, because, you know, boredom, for example, precedes Bleak House and Dustbin was around before he used it in Dombey and Son, but they wouldn't have survived without Dickens bringing them to the public attention. And that's, you know, that is also his huge linguistic power, I think, like Shakespeare. I have a favourite and it's Butterfingers. Butterfingers. It first appeared in the posthumous papers of the Pickwick Club. Um, hmm. better known as, as the Pickwick Papers in 1836. Uh, at every bad attempt at a catch and every failure to stop the ball, he launched his personal displeasure at the head of the devoted individual in such denunciations as, ah, ah, stupid, now butterfingers, muff, humbug, and so forth. Ah, humbug, of course, occurs famously in A Christmas Carol. But that's the first use of butterfingers. Have I got time to tell you a quick story? Um, There was a production, a famous production of the play Titus Andronicus, one of Shakespeare's darker plays. And it was uh, produced at uh, Stratford-upon-Avon in the 1950s, starring Laurence Olivier and his then-wife Vivian Lee. And he played Titus Andronicus. And in the play, the character played by Vivian Lee, tragically, is brutalised. She's um, uh, ravished. And uh, the men who ravish her then cut off her hands so that she can't write down their names to name them, and they, tear, and they tear out her tongue so that she can't <laughs> speak their names. It's a, it's a ghastly, grim play. Anyway, on the first night of this production in Stratford-upon-Avon, in the audience were lots of the friends of Laurence Olivier and Vivian Lee, famous actors, including uh, the great Noel Coward. And the play began, and uh, Vivian Lee was quite nervous. And in the play, uh, the character that she played, Lavinia, she names her assailants by finding a stick and writing, holding the stick between her sort of forearms 
and writing their names in the sand. That's how she names the people who have attacked her. But on this opening night, she was very nervous, understandably, because she was nervous, I think, as a she was a great film star, but her voice was smaller than Olivier's. She was quite tentative. Anyway, she comes onto the stage for this final scene, holding the stick, and unfortunately it slips from her grasp, the stick with which she's supposed to be writing the names of her assailants. Not only does it fall from her grasp, it lands on the stage, and because there's quite a steep rake on the stage, it rolls down the stage and oh. into the orchestra pit. So ruining the end of the play. After the performance, Noel Coward rushes round to her dressing room, knocks on the door, flings the door open, and goes, tut, tut, butter stumps. Oh, no. Because, <laughs> of course, she's had her hands cut off. Anyway, oh. that's whenever I, I think of butterfingers, I think of butter stumps. Doormat was one of his too, wasn't it? Yes, doormat was another one. You know, some of them sound... Very, very old and inexplicably, well, they sound so wonderful. They didn't survive, like comfoozled, comfoozled, meaning a bit sort of a mix between discombobulated and bamboozled. I love that one. But some of them sound incredibly modern, like I've got his number. You know, if you say I've got someone's number, it means you, you know what they're up to. But actually, he uses it um, for, you know, all the awful, interminable legal machinations in Bleak House. Whenever a person proclaims to you, in worldly matters I'm a child, that person is only a crying off from being held accountable and you have got that person's number and it's number one. So, you know, that's, that's, I know, it's fantastic. Giving someone the creeps as well. He was the first to give us that idea of, of the creeps. And he, again, like Shakespeare, sorry to keep drawing these parallels, but he was brilliant at flipping parts of speech. So, you know, create converting adjectives to nouns. So messy became messiness and likewise creepy became the creeps. He just let his creative impulses fly, really, in terms of playing around with language. And not everyone liked it. Quite a few people thought, you know, what what is he doing to the language? But you will know, because I know you've just done a series on places associated with some of our greatest writers, and Dickens was one of them. He had a sort of a, a really tough life, didn't he? But what sort of person was Dickens? Well, I think he was a complicated person. We love him. He's popular. And he was popular with his friends. And yet we have to face the fact that he was unkind, very unkind to his wife, yeah. who bore him yeah. many children. And he loved her very much. I mean, they were young when they got married. Uh, he was only, I think, 19. She was the, the daughter of his editor. He was a, you know, wrote for a newspaper at that time. And they fell in love and they got married and they had lots of children. They were happy in the early years. But I'm afraid it was probably when she grew fat on having mm. all these children, that he didn't fancy her so much. And I think he mm. began to find her dull. And he was in love with the theatre. And he had a roving eye, um, eventually lighted on a, an actress and had an affair. And, the, and the, the girl became his mistress. He turned out his wife. He disowned her. He made life difficult for her financially. It became very fraught because... Her sister continued to be his housekeeper, his wife's sister, sided with Charles Dickens rather than um, with Mrs. Dickens. He didn't live openly with his mistress because that would have been too great a scandal for the time. He had a a sort of hideaway with his mistress and they uh, had a place where they escaped to in France. It became a public scandal 
when he and the mistress were involved in a train accident and her name was mentioned, but he denied that there'd been any impropriety. Yeah, so it's quite, so there may be a bit of Scrooge in him, actually. I was just thinking about some of the some of the cruelty in his naming, which we you know, mentioned earlier. I mean, ingenious, the way that he names his characters, but you can tell that there's some sting there, can't you? I think we get into a trouble if we start feeling that to love someone's writing, you've got to love the writer, hmm. because it's the work we fall in love with. And hmm. I know that there'll be people who've been now put off reading Dickens. They think, well, actually... He wasn't a very good man. Well, we don't. Fortunately, we know almost nothing about Shakespeare. It's always seemed amazing to me that we know nothing about Shakespeare, and yet he seems to know everything about us. But it's good that we know nothing about Shakespeare because we might not like some of the things that we know. Mm. His great strength, uh, Dickens, was that he was an incredible worker. He lived for work. He would get up early in the morning. He would write for several hours before going off to do his journalism for his day job. He did a lot of thinking while walking. He walked for miles, as many as 20 miles a day. I mean, once he famously set off from his London house and walked all the way to Gads Hill in Kent, his country house, which was 30 miles away. So he was an incredible worker, and he gave himself to his public, and the public adored him. He was, in a way, the inventor of the one-man show. Other people had done it before, but not quite in the way he did. He certainly was the, in- the inventor of the popular author who went on tour. He-, he would entertain a thousand people, travel the length and breadth of the country. In fact, he killed himself performing giving readings of his plays. And they were all serialised as well. So they were real cliffhangers, weren't they? Which which is brilliant. If you had to choose, Giles, a favourite name from any Dickens novel, what would it be? Bumble. I love the name Mr Bumble. Mine would be Mr. Boffin. Oh, I don't, I don't remember Mr. Boffin. Oh, Mr. Boffin is in Our Mutual Friend, which is probably my favourite ah. of all of Dickens' novels. I mean, just to, to talk about his names, as I mentioned, I mean, I don't think any novelist has been more inventive in this area of using names that are so memorable that they become completely inextricable from the characters and and their traits. So you've got Scrooge, of course, which has become a byword in English all by itself. Mr. Micawber, who is a spendthrift and always, it's always something will turn up. Uriah Heep. I mean, you just imagine him kind of bent over in a kind of toadying sort of way. Pecksniff. But in Our Mutual Friend, you've got the Veneerings, who are all about show. Mm. Um, and they're just brilliant. And you've got the Podsnaps. And you've got Bradley Headstone. And you've got Silas Wegg with a wooden leg. I mean, he's just genius. My favourite family in Dickens are the Crummels. They're the family, hmm. the theatrical family in Nicholas Nickleby. But you're right, the names conjure up the personality, grad grind from hard grad times. Grind. Yeah. And also, what, what I didn't realise, um, which is quite interesting, is that he would play around with many of his invented names until he was satisfied that they were just right. So take Martin Chuzzlewit. Apparently, he toyed before with Martin Sweezledon, Sweezleback, Sweezlewag, Chuzzletoe, Chuzzleboy, Chubblewig, Chuzzlewig, and then finally landed on Chuzzlewit. It was a very carefully crafted thing um, for him. We call them atronyms. Do you remember we talked in an earlier episode about nominative determinism, you know, how people's names perfectly describe or perfectly suit their professions or their personality? I mean, Dickens is the absolute 
master of creating aptronyms, really. And in his really earlier writings, I think they were probably a bit less sophisticated. So he had a Lord Muttonhead and then he had some scientific gentlemen called Mrs. Pestle and Mortar. So I think I think they became more subtle as he went along. But I just think that, for me, that's the greatest part of his genius. Well, his name interestingly, it's an old tradition, of course. Other people have done it before. Restoration yeah. playwrights gave their characters amusing names. Of course, names. that's you true. Know, Mr. Teasel in Sheridan's School for Scandal. You go back yeah. to Shakespeare, Sir Toby Belch, uh, yeah. Sir Andrew Aguecheek. But what <laughs> I think is unusual about Dickens is some of those words entered the vocabulary. We all know what a Scrooge yeah. is. And people of my father's generation, he would call, my father would call an umbrella a gamp. Oh, and that's from Mrs. Gamp, Mrs. Isn't it? Gamp had an umbrella. Yeah. And for people... Late Victorians, Edwardians, even up to the up to the Second World War, people called umbrellas gamps. Also bumper shoots, if you remember. But that's not Dickens. A, another really important contribution, I think, of Dickens to linguists and to lexicographers or dictionary makers is that he really knew his street slang. So you have to remember that actually the earliest glossaries of slang were from the criminal underworld. They were the first collections of words really to be um, documented and, and collected formally and Dickens really knew his stuff so if you take the Bow Street Runners in Oliver Twist they speak a really distinctive language which is what they called cant cant being the variety of slang that was used as a secret language by criminals and their associates you know they talk about a burglary as a crack and they use blunt for money and both of those were really common in, in dickens's time sort of thieves slang but he really knew his stuff there and he also he was very much in touch with the language of his day. So um, euphemisms. Do you remember we've talked about euphemisms for trousers at the time, oh, which yes. I absolutely love? So again, there was just, there's lots of things in his novels where it shows that kind of real Victorian reluctance to use the word trousers. So in Oliver Twist, the butler Giles is describing his actions. He's been disturbed by burglars. And he says, I tossed off the clothes and got softly out of bed, drew on a pair. And someone says, ladies present. And he says, of shoes, sir. And yes, they say whenever there are sort of women present, they're never allowed to mention the word trousers. So uh, all of these are really useful for us because they kind of give us real concrete evidence of, of what people were squeamish about at the time. And also, as I say, what the kind of underworld was doing linguistically. I've made a list of some of my favourite words that were coined by Dickens or that he gave a new meaning to. And I want to rattle through them because I don't think our listeners will quite believe that it was Charles Dickens all those years ago, the early part of the 19th century, who conjured them up first. And if you want to comment on any of them, just interrupt me. Boredom, we've mentioned. Mm -hmm. Cheesiness, incredible. He came up with that. Fluffiness, flummox. Flummox is a brilliant one. Isn't it? Amazing. Yeah. And I think it comes in Pickwick Papers. And my opinion is, Sammy, that if your governor don't prove an alibi, he'll be what the Italians call regularly flummoxed. And that's all about it. Is that an Italian word that it's based on? Or was he just inventing that? It's just, I think, well, for me, it's really, like, again, like discombobulate and kerfuffle and all those sorts of things. It sounds very onomatopoeic to me. Um, I'm looking here in the OED. It says, perhaps of English dialect origin. Um, and in Gloucestershire dialects, no, Herefordshire dialect, sorry, there is the verb flummock, C-K-S, meaning to mangle. And a flummock is a sloven slovenly person. But it can also mean kind of hurry or bewilderment and making something untidy. So, 
It says the formation seems to be onomatopoeic, expressive of the notion of throwing down roughly and untidily. But you've got those kind of regional backups as well. Rampage. To clap eyes on someone. That's uh, Mm. a Dickens original. A slow coach. Somebody who is very tardy is a slow coach. Rampage, by the way, yes. just to interrupt, mm. Rampage was around before uh, and it was all to do with a wild beast going completely mad. But it was Dickens who kind of brought it into the human sphere. Oh, I mean, a ram going mad or just a wild beast? Um, no, I think that's just a very good question. I don't think it's anything to do with rams. It is a state of excitement or violent passion. Oh, maybe it's an, as in outrage, but you're ramping it up a bit so it becomes rampage. Yeah, it's the ramp. So to ramp of an animal was to rear or stand on the hind legs. So definitely in heraldry, if you were rampant, that's what you were doing. But as I say, Dickens kind of introduced that into the idea of absolute human destruction. Well, there are four more I want to share with you. Devil May Care. Mm. It's extraordinary, isn't it, that he came up with that. Devil May Care. But this one I find amazing. Egg Box. Oh. Isn't that interesting? Egg Box. Yeah. I suppose, I mean, also that reflects the period. I imagine previously eggs arrived in baskets. Yeah. And maybe at his time, people were introducing the idea of an egg box, but that's the origin of the use of it. Casualty ward. A casualty ward didn't exist before Dickens coined the phrase. And my favourite of all, fairy story. Oh, isn't that lovely? Yeah. Yeah. But again, it's an idea of sort of taking existing words and then and then sort of, you know, creating new compounds. I mean, they may have been around at the time, but he was not only a prof- sort of street professor of slang, but also just a great, a great popularizer. I've got one description from our mutual friends. I mentioned that's my absolute favourite, which has got nothing to do with creating new words, but everything to do with poetry. I think he just had such a vivid eye for landscape. And our mutual friend is starts off with people dredging the river for bodies. So again, it's kind of set in that sort of world of crime where people would get money for the bodies that they dredged up from the river. But this is just beautiful. It's the white face of the winter day came sluggishly on, veiled in a frosty mist, and the shadowy ships in the river slowly changed to black substances, and the sun, blood red on the eastern marshes behind dark masts and yards, seemed filled with the ruins of a forest it had set on fire. I mean, that's just so beautifully vivid, isn't it? You should be doing talking books. Oh, yeah. I love that. I just It's such a lovely novel. It is a great novel. I want you, after the break, to tell me, other than Dickens, what your favourite novel is, what you would recommend, what we would recommend for people to read this Christmas. If they can get hold of a book that isn't by Dickens, they should curl up by their fire. What's it called, that warmth of the fire again? What was that word you gave us earlier? Cloffin. Cloffin. To cloffin. When you're cloffinating this Christmas, what's the book you're going to read? <laughs> or just, cl- you can just say cloffing, actually. Cloffing. Is it I-N-G at the end or is it C-L-O-W-N? Yeah, well, it's there's two versions. It's probably easy to use the cloth. You can either cloffin or you can cloth. You can cloth. So you can cloffing, you can be cloffing. <laughs> very confusing. Sounds very Dickensian, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, so let's go cloffing. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Here we are again. We're talking 
Christmas reading, we've been talking about Dickens, not about the words he gave us for Christmas, but just the words he gave us. What a genius he was. I mentioned that uh, fairy story was one of the phrases he introduced us to, maybe as a result of the visit of Hans Andersen. You know, he had a correspondence with Hans Christian Andersen, the great Danish fairy tale writer, and he invited him to stay, not just for a day or two. Wow. Not just for a week or two, not just for a month or two. After a week, after a week, after a week, Dickens did not know what to do, how to get rid of this man, this crashing bore that turned out to be Hans Andersen. He was a bore. Don't tell me this. I know. Maybe that's where boredom, maybe that's why he coined boredom. Maybe that is why he coined, yes. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Anyway. But of course... Anderson's got that dark side as well, isn't he, which which Dickens has in spades. But you asked me about my Christmas recommendation. Please. I'd love to hear yours as well. I know the answer to this because I was asked this very recently, actually, and there's only one choice for me, and it was something I read when I was a teenager, and it totally captured me in so many different ways. And it's um, in French, it's called Le Grand Moon, but in English, it's called The Lost Estate. It's by Alain somebody, Alain. Alain Fournier. Alain Fournier. This was his only book. He died in the First World War. And it's haunting and it's dreamy and it's about first love and a magical lost house. It's just this sense of magic that pervades the whole thing. And it's set in the twilight world between childhood and adolescence when we don't know what we're going to lose by growing up. And it's just innocent but sensual. And honestly, I can't recommend it more highly. It's gorgeous. So The Lost Estate or The Lost Domain, that would be mine. The Lost Estate is the English translation. The Lost Estate of Le Grand Monde or Le Grand Monde, Le Grand Monde. Le Grand Monde. And Monde. you can see why they didn't want to translate <sighs> Monde because it's it's quite difficult to pronounce. It's M-E-A-U-L-N-E-S. And that's what it was called in French and quite a difficult title to translate. But honestly, once you get past that, it's, it's just great. I really love it. Well, I think I would choose always Victorian writers. I, I, I've never really left the 19th century. My favourite Victorian writers are probably in this order. Thackeray, William Makepeace Thackeray. Oh, yeah. He wrote some Christmas stories, but he also wrote one of the great novels, Vanity Fair. If mm. you haven't read Vanity Fair, it's a wonderful... I haven't read Vanity oh, Fair, so I've got you that, are, that in store. I've given you a Christmas treat. I shall read Le Grand Moon. I probably will read okay. it in translation because yes. my French is a bit rusty. Well, there's a Penguin classic Good. translation. And what was the translation yep. called again? What was the title again? Uh, the Lost Estate or The Lost Domain. The Lost yeah. Estate, The Lost Domain. I shall read that. You should read Vanity Fair. It's got this character in it called Becky Sharp. She is a kind of heroine who's an anti-heroine. Fantastic. William okay. Makepeace Thackeray. I've read actually all his novels. They are amazing. And Trollope as well. Are you, well of you're course. quite a Trollope person. I'm, I'm a huge Anthony Trollope fan. And yeah. I've, I've read, in fact, the complete works of Trollope. I have fiction. I've not read his non-fiction. I've read all his fictional works. I'm a member of the Trollope Society and I've got these beautiful editions that I've never opened. I've read them in paperback. So mm. the, the Chronicles of Barset which is sort of stories set in Barsetshire that are all about around a cathedral close. They are wonderful. I think there's six novels in that series. And then they're the ones that became the, the political novels that were turned into a television series called The Palaces. So mm. I would go for Thackeray and then Trollope. And then if I wanted, for you, for you maybe almost above Vanity Fair, but you've got to read that, I would recommend Arnold Bennett. Now, people haven't really heard of Arnold Bennett nowadays. He was a hugely popular writer in his time for a while. He was the highest paid writer in the world. 
And uh, he went out of fashion largely because the Bloomsbury crowd was snobbish about him. People like Virginia Woolf rather dissed him. But he, he came from the potteries in England, part of the sort of Midlands where pottery came from. And he, where, where Dickens gives you character, mm. characters, Arnold Bennett gives you people, real people. And a lot of women writers, women critics, say that Arnold Bennett is the male writer who understood women best. Okay. So what should I read? The Old Wives' Tale. The Old Wives' Tale. Okay. Old Wives' Tale, written by Tale. Arnold Bennett at the beginning of the 20th century. There was an extraordinary year, I think something like 1904, when all the great works of literature ever written were written in that one year. I think Chekhov wrote The Cherry Orchard, J.M. Barry wrote Peter Pan, and Arnold Bennett wrote The Old Wife's Tale. Okay. That's my Christmas recommendation. Uh, Excellent. If you listeners have got books you think we should read or books we should recommend, particularly if they've got a linguistic feel to them, all these are writers who did amazing things with words, do get in touch with us. And people do. They communicate with us. It's purple at something else dot com. Uh, have we got some emails in this week? We do. Um, we oh, well, we have so many and we do read them all, even if we can't get to all of them. So thank you. But this one's from Olivia in Aberdeenshire. She says she wasn't born there. So she's not a native Doric or Scots speaker. But over the time, she's lived there and picked up a fair bit. And two of her absolute favourite Scots and Doric words are the words quine for girl and loon for boy, both of which are in common use. And she's wondering if there's any link with the word queen for quine. And, mm. and where does that word come from anyway? Um, so thank you, Olivia. Well, to go back to Queen, first of all, the old English spelling was C-W-E-N and it meant a wife, specifically the wife of an important man, such as a king, of course. And related to that was an old English Queen, spelt the same way, C-W-E-N, but with an E at the end, meaning woman. And I don't know if you remember, Giles, but I told you how women have had such a rough ride in English, really, because quite often words that started off being very neutral and very innocent then went rapidly downhill and somehow loose morals always came into play. And so came, so happened with Queen because an alternative spelling of it, Q-U-E-A-N, emerged, meaning a bold or impudent woman and in the 16th and 17th centuries, a queen was a prostitute. Oh. So that spelling of queen existed alongside the modern queen, E-E-N, which was obviously completely the opposite. So uh, the example I'd given you before was hussy coming from Husweef, a housewife, a woman who was in charge of the house. And housewife went one way and hussy went the other. And so it was with queen. Eventually the Q-U-E-A-N, the prostitute sense, just disappeared because it all got too confusing. But quine that Olivia mentions is indeed related to that old English queen meaning a woman. So you don't get any of the impudent sense in there. So they're all they're all linked. It's a complicated picture, but it, they are all linked together. And loon originally meant a man of low birth or condition. So one of the phrases that you won't find anymore is lord and loon. In other words, the whole world, people who are high and mighty and then people who are lowly. But eventually that relaxed as it often does with men, it doesn't take the negative turn that it does with women. Uh, and it simply meant a man or a chap or a boy. So they've got really, really old roots. Take us all the way back to um, Anglo-Saxon England. Well, I think there, as far as men are concerned, you've been kicking us in the crotch, which leads me <laughs> neatly to this communication from Edward in West Virginia. This is Edward H. Kafka Gelbrecht. Great name. Oh, wow. What from, if he's related? Uh, well, to Kafka. Oh, yes. One of my favourite novelists, yes. Oh, really? 
And what mm, about Gelbrecht? We've not read Gelbrecht as much as we wanted to. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Edward in West Virginia writes, Dear Susie and Giles, I'm smitten with your podcast. We love to hear that. I've spent the past several weeks devouring the major part of your back catalogue. In your place names episode, Susie mentioned Crotch Crescent, C-R-O-T-C-H, Crescent. <laughs> Near me. My yeah. dictionary tells me crotch is related to crutch, though I don't exactly see how. Here in West Virginia, some of the older folks do refer to the crotch of a tree, where a limb mm. attaches to the trunk. So there does seem to be a connection to wood. Many of these older folk could also be described as crotchety. <laughs> is that also related to crotch? And can crochet be looped in as well or crotch it? Wow. So many different questions there. But actually, thankfully, they all have a similar root. So Edward mentions the crotch crescent and the crotch of a body. So crotch crescent near me is indeed crescent shaped and it's kind of in a loop. It's a bit like a hook. And that was the original meaning of crotchet, which was basically from the old French croche, meaning a crozier or a shepherd's crook, but which was based on a Viking word meaning a hook. So it's all about the hook of the body. So the crutch, if you think about it, is where your legs, you know, your legs fork out from your crotch. And a crutch, which is related, is also a kind of, you know, you have two crutches and it's almost like you've got that sort of forked help to support you, if that makes any sense whatsoever. A musical crotchet is linked to the same idea of, of a hook because of the um, the shape of the musical notation. I think that's my doorbell. That might be Lloyd the Postman. And crotchety means kind of perverse in some way. So sort of slightly hooked or slightly kind of bent, if you see what I mean. Croquet also linked in there because croquet involves putting a ball through a hook in, in the ground. And they are indeed all related. So the crotch of a tree where a limb attaches to the trunk, it's all about creating that fork shape. Does that make any sense? Total sense. Edward signs off, keep up the fine work. Isn't that kind? Thank you very much. Oh. And you, please, listeners, keep up the fine work of writing to us. We do love to hear from you. Do you know, I've always wanted a back catalogue. Makes it sound very grand. It does. You've got, a, you've got your own back catalogue, Susie Dent. <laughs> now tell me, anything else? Yes, uh, we received a couple of questions actually relating to cats this week. So Rhoda Gillespie has written to ask why we call cats pussy cats. She wonders if it's anything from, uh, to do with the French word for flea, la pousse. Um, and Issy Sale, or Izzy, who's in her final year of French and linguistics at Leeds University, has said, where does the word wuss come from? My mum tells my cat that she's one of these because she's scared of everything. Um, well, Izzy, we also have a little rescue cat who seems to be scared of everything and scaredy cat would suit her too. OK, to, I'll start with the pussy cat. That is... Apparently, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, was imitative of the hissing sound that you would use to get a cat's attention. I'm not sure I've ever gone to my cat other than to try and, you know, scare her off. But, you know, you might laugh, but actually the conventional name for a cat in Germanic languages and as far off as Afghanistan, apparently, is all, it's quite similar sounding. So in Romanian, you have Pisica, I think it would be. In Lithuanian, you have pus. In Low German, you have pus. And in Swedish dialect, you have katapus, etc. So there's so many variants of this up and down the globe, really. And that is the dictionary's best bet, that it's imitative of the sound that we as humans make to get a cat's attention. Now, wuss, simple answer to that, Izzy, is that it's probably a blend of wimp and puss, with the puss idea being linked to the scaredy cat bit, which I think is what your mum also calls your poor cat. So thank you very much for those. We, we love cats. Now, I think scaredy cat, we can credit the great Dorothy Parker with coming up with the first use of scaredy cat. 
She wrote a story called The Waltz. Dorothy Parker, wonderful American writer of short, sharp verses, a great writer of The New Yorker, wrote stories as well. It's so nice to meet a man who isn't scaredy-cat about catching my berry-berry. <laughs> uh, so, scaredy-cat. Yeah, we can credit to Dorothy Parker. If you want to communicate with us, do please. Uh, We do our best to, well, we certainly read everything. We do our best to answer everything. And every week you come up, Susie, with three special words for us. And this is Christmas week. Have you got Christmassy words or just words that you love? These are real words always, aren't they? Some people say to me, oh, she just invents them. Uh, But you don't, do you? (laughs) I don't invent them, no. I mean, you know, anybody can invent any word. And of course, it's still a valid word. But these ones have been documented. Most of them come from uh, the dictionary. So, okay, I've going to abandon the ones that I had actually and come up with three Christmas words, which may well be a repetition of the Christmas words that we talked about in Le Petto Men. But I think they are worthy of repeating because they describe Christmas experiences for so many of us. The first is my absolute favourite and regular Purple listeners will know this one off by heart, but it's scurry funging. Do you remember what Oh, I love that. You see, I love the word, but I can't remember what it is, what it means. Uh, Well, I'm not sure how much of this we'll be doing this Christmas, but we can look forward to scurry funges of the future. To scurry funge is to run around the house, dash about trying to tidy up just before visitors arrive. Ah, yes. So we all have a good scurry funge. Confelicity, another one that I absolutely adore. Confelicity is joy in other people's happiness. Um, So no apologies for repeating that one because it's just perfect for uh, Christmas Day. And the other one, okay, I'm going to give you a sockdologer because if we have got people, if we are allowed to have people around this Christmas, you might have just, just have a argument or two. It might be over the Scrabble or Monopoly board. It might be about who's going to get the last quality street. The sockdologer is the final blow in an argument. In other words, it's the knockout punch from which there is no return. It's the final say in a family argument, the sockdologer. I like it. The sockdologer. Great word. Well, look, you've given us a great year. I'm now going to give you a great poem. It's a Christmas poem. And we were talking about Victorian writers today from Dickens through Trollope and Thackeray, right up to people like Arnold Bennett and your man Alain Fournier at the beginning of the 20th Mm -hmm. century. I suppose the most distinguished member of my family was a writer called George R. Sims. Ever heard of him? 1847 to 1922? Well, George R. Sims was hugely famous in his day. He was a household name. He was a journalist. He was a poet, a playwright. He wrote pantomime scripts, in fact, for the big Drury Lane pantomimes before the First World War. He was a novelist. He was a social reformer. He was a celebrity. He was a Victorian, Edwardian man about town. But his greatest claim to fame was writing a sentimental ballad called Christmas Day in the Workhouse. It begins, it was Christmas Day in the workhouse. That phrase, does that ring a bell with you? No, I was just thinking about Dickens in the workhouse Well, again. he was a kind of poor man's Dickens in the sense that he, okay. he took up the causes that Dickens had espoused later in the century and he was appalled by the plight of the London poor and but the conditions of the people in the workhouses where, where prisoners and paupers were kept and, you know, given very little charity. And he yes. wrote this famous poem that became... Probably, possibly, one of the most famous poems learnt by heart and spoken by people over Christmas around the fireside. And my father certainly knew it by heart and would perform it to us at Christmas. And I knew a wonderful English comic actor called Ronnie Barker, British Mm. 
listeners won't need to be introduced to Ronnie Barker. Globally, maybe some people might be. Ronnie Barker with Ronnie Corbett did shows that at Christmas were hugely popular. He was a brilliant man, Ronnie Barker. And when I knew him, he said, you're related to George R. Sims, aren't you? And I said, yes. He said, well, I've got this poem, this parody idea of Christmas Day in the workhouse, and I've never been able to get it on radio, on TV. They won't touch it because it's a bit cheeky. He said, but it's actually completely innocent. So he gave it to me, and I put it in my anthology of Poetry to Learn by Heart, Dancing by the Light of the Moon, and I thought I would share it with you. And while you are, while you're cloughing by the fire, enjoy this. It was Christmas Day in the workhouse. The merriest day of the year. The paupers and the prisoners were all assembled there. In came the Christmas pudding, when a voice that shattered glass said, We don't want your Christmas pudding, so stick it there, with the rest of the unwanted presents. (laughs) The workhouse master then arose and prepared to carve the duck. He said, Who wants the parson's nose? And the prisoners shouted, You have it yourself, sir. (laughs) The vicar brought his Bible and read out little bits. Said one old crone at the back of the hall, This man gets on very well with everybody. (laughs) The master rose to make a speech, but just before he started, the mistress, who was fifteen stone, gave three loud cheers and nearly choked herself. And all the paupers then began to pull their Christmas crackers. One pauper held his two low down and blew off both his paper hat and the man's next to him. (laughs) The mistress, dishing out the food, dropped custard down her front. She cried, aren't I a silly girl? And they answered, you're a perfect picture as always, (laughs) ma'am. So then they all began to sing, which shook the workhouse walls. Merry Christmas, cried the master. And the inmates shouted, best of luck to you as well, sir. (laughs) So that's my Christmas poem. Uh, That's brilliant. George R. Sims, adapted by Ronnie Barker, performed by... Giles Brandreth, who recommends for Christmas a wonderful book by Susie Dent called Word Perfect. Uh, It is exactly that. So as well as your fiction, we've recommended lots of fiction, you will need some non-fiction. And I'm recommending Word Perfect by you, uh, because it's just got a different word for every day of the year. It's a joy. And what are you recommending in the non-fiction stakes? In non-fiction, well, can I return the favour? And I'm not just doing this to um, toady up to you, Giles, but as you will know, I was asked by GQ magazine here in the UK what I would recommend for people this Christmas and what has been my oasis during lockdown year. And it's got to be your Oxford Book of Theatrical Anecdotes. I promise you this isn't just backslapping. I genuinely love it. And there's one story in there which I just tell everybody because it made me laugh so much and it was the perfect antidote to kind of hours of doom scrolling through my phone. Okay, so it's from the actor Peter Bowles who uh, was remembering a conversation with one of the great late actors, Albert Finney, and they were 18-year-old flatmates at the time. And one night they're discussing what part they'd most like to play. And it turned out they both had the same one, which was to play Macbeth. And Albert asks Peter how he'd prepare. And Peter sort of at length goes on about how he would play the role in a kilt. He would imagine himself into Macbeth. He would adopt a Scottish accent, but not after, you know, not before having studied all the great scholars on Macbeth. And he says, so how would you play it, Albert? And Finney's answer was, I'd learn the fucking lines and walk on. (laughs) (laughs) It's just brilliant. So I can recommend that one for sure. Well, in a way, Purple People, I think Susie's book, Word Perfect, 
gives you Susie, if you want to read Susie between podcasts. And in a way, the Oxford Book of Theatrical Anecdotes gives you me, if you want to read me between podcasts. But we will be back in a week's time with more purple fun. I think we ought to look at our words of the year and maybe play some uh, holiday games, some word games next week. Anyway, uh, if you want to be in touch with us, you can tweet us or email us at purple at something else.com. And do please spread the word, recommend us to friends, you know, put like, 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 whatever you can. We're very grateful. (laughs) We'd love that. Something Rhymes with Purple is a Something Else production produced by Lawrence Bassett, additional production from Harriet Wells, Steve Ackerman, Ella McLeod, Jay Beale, and still arguing over the purple one in the Quality Street tin, Gully. Ah, no pecksniff he.